All right. Well, I am looking forward to having North Star Initiative with us next week. Now, today, I have an announcement to make. This is not the last sermon in our series on Philippians. Next week, when we host North Star Initiative, I'll be sharing a short message from Philippians as well that should kind of go along with what we're saying today and kind of wrap everything up next week. Now, last week, we began to look at chapter 4, verses 10 to 20, and we saw that in the midst of some really cool relational stuff that's happening here, we also get a chance in these verses to see some, some really neat stuff in the hearts of both Paul and these Philippian believers that will help us conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel of Christ and to experience the peace of God that passes all understanding that we've been studying in this chapter. And so last week we saw how Paul displays for us an amazing contentment that he's able to walk in and that we can walk in. And we saw that contentment is a satisfaction in Jesus and trust in his work. Now we should have it in any and every situation. Now we should have it because a lack of contentment leads to evil. And if we're going to have it, we must learn it by faith in the one who gives us strength. You know, and I share this stuff uh, briefly again with you because uh, the verses we looked at last week, uh, because we're going to look at something very awesome in the hearts of these Philippian believers, and it really goes hand in hand with what we saw last week. It's like one flows from the other. And the contentment that Paul shows us in verses 10 to 13 kind of flows into it and enables the generosity of heart that we see in verses 14 to 20. So let's read the entire passage together and get a sense of it. Then we'll come back and unpack it together and see what we can take away to apply to our everyday lives where we live. All right, so Philippians chapter 4, verses 14 to 20. And it says, Yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Moreover, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, when I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, except you only. For even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent me aid more than once when I was in need. Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I have received full payment and have more than enough. I am amply supplied. Now that I have received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, they are a fragrant offering an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. And my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Now, would you just bow with me for a moment in prayer over the word of God? Dear Heavenly Father, please give us ears to hear what you're saying to us. Give us eyes to see what you're doing in our lives and give us a heart to understand. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, all right, as we begin, let me just give you a kind of a brief overview of the journey that we're about to take together this morning. We're going to begin with these Philippian believers that we see in these verses here. And then we're going to kind of step back a little bit and get a broader picture of what God is doing in the world and how these Philippian believers fit into that. And then we'll zoom back in on these Philippian believers and see what God is doing in them and what we can learn from them. All right, so first, we see in verses 15 and 16 that, that Paul's talking to these believers about the loving support that they've just sent to him. And he says, you know, they shared with him in the matter of giving and receiving. They sent him aid 
more than once. Some translations say again and again. And so the question is, why? Why are these believers sending aid to Paul? I mean, what is the purpose of it? I mean, is Paul just needy? Well, no. I mean, we've already seen that he's learned to be content in any and every situation, whether he's in plenty or in want. So that's not it, right? But if that's not it, then what is it? I mean, is this just some requirement that Paul is placing on him, like to be a part of one of his churches that he founded, they have to send him this aid or something like that? I mean, is this kind of a heavy ecclesiastical hand or something that Paul's laid on him? And well, the answer to that is really no, because if you look at Paul's writings, you see that um, it seems to indicate that people should give these types of gifts willingly, out of the generosity of their heart, not under any type of compulsion, right? So that, that's not it either. So, so what's going on in these Philippian believers that they're sending him this aid again and again? So what, to understand that, we'll need to understand something of Jesus' purpose for the church, for the body of Christ. And so we need to go back to just after the resurrection and just before Jesus ascends into heaven if we're going to understand uh, why the Philippian believers are doing this. And we're going to need to ask, why did Jesus even leave here in the first place? And what does Jesus expect to have happen between the time he left and the time that he returned? And so to see that, we're going to look briefly at just two places of Scripture, right? The first is the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28 verses 18 to 20. That's Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20. And now here, Jesus has already risen from the dead, and he's appeared to many of the disciples on many occasions, and he's about to ascend into heaven. And he says this. He says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, this is what is known as the Great Commission. I mean, Jesus had previously told them that he was going to be ascending to heaven, that he was going to be leaving them, and that he would send the Holy Spirit to them. Now he's telling the body of Christ what he expects us to do while he's away. What he wants us to be focused on in the time between his leaving and his returning. Making disciples who in turn make disciples, who in turn make disciples. Teaching and replicating everything that Jesus taught us. And by the way, it's not just pastors. It's not just for pastors and, 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 and preachers, right? All disciples of Jesus, all followers of Jesus are supposed to be about this great commission. That's what Jesus expect, expects of you and of, of us and of the body of Christ. And, and look at for a minute who Jesus told this to, right? He says, is it to their own countrymen? Well, well, no, not just them. He says, make disciples of all nations, right? Now that, I mean, it included their countrymen, right? But it was so much more as well, all nations. Now, can I just tell you for a minute, that's a really heavy lift. I mean, for Jesus to look at these maybe 500 a ragtag group of, of believers in him and, and, and tell them that, you know, uh, you're to go now and make disciples of all nations. Well, I mean, that's just in the natural, that's a little ridiculous. 
I mean, that's a little bit silly, right? Um, the idea that they're going to go to places like Asia and Greece and Rome and, and, and Egypt and Spain and, and India and to the uttermost parts of the earth, right, uh, to, to make disciples. In the natural, that's a little bit ridiculous. But Jesus didn't expect them to do that in the natural. Turn to Acts chapter 1, verse 8, if you will, for just a moment. Acts 1, 8. And here we think this is probably the same occasion as Matthew 28. It's just, just likely more details of the same conversation. So Jesus is about to be taken from them. We think this is the occasion when 500 believers are, are gathered here on the mountain and uh, Jesus is about to leave and he tells them to wait for the promised Holy Spirit. And then in verse 8, he tells them what he expects to have happen during the time in between when he leaves and when he returns. Here's the how of the Great Commission. He says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And so here's the pattern. To Jerusalem, that's what's closest to you. Then to Judea, what's, what's next closest. And then to Samaria, a little further removed, both geographically and culturally. And then to the ends of the earth, the uttermost parts of the earth. Places that are very distant from them, both geographically and culturally. To places that are different from them so much that they don't even speak the same language. Right? And they don't even do life the same kind of way. Right? So that's the pattern. This is the way Jesus wants, what Jesus wants to happen between the time he left and the time he returns. All right? And as you look at the book of Acts, that's the exact pattern that you start to see emerge and develop. Let me show it to you. On the day of Pentecost, right, the gospel exploded in Jerusalem and 5,000 were added to their number on a single day. And then in chapters 1 through 7 of the book of Acts, uh, the gospel spread to many, many people throughout Jerusalem and Judea, to people who were just like them. Same language, same culture. And then in Acts chapter 8, due to persecution, it says that the gospel now spreads to Samaria, to people who are like them in some ways, but different in a lot of other ways culturally. And then at the same time, there were Jewish people from all over the Roman Empire who had been in Jerusalem for the day of Pentecost. And when this persecution began to happen, it says that they were spread back to where they came from. And so they began to establish some Christian groups in all of these different countries. However, most of these groups at this time were completely Jewish. They would meet in, in synagogues. And one of these groups is mentioned in Acts chapter 9. It says that they were in the city of Damascus in Syria. And then in Acts chapter 11, it mentions several more groups. Verse 19, it says groups that went to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. But it says that they only spread the gospel among Jewish people. Now, I want you to catch that for a minute. These, these Jewish Christians who had been in Jerusalem went back to their cities, and they established Christians group there, but they were only spreading the gospel among other Jewish people. Now, let me tell you why that is. Right? It's because of this Greek word right here. Oikos. Oikos. It means home or house or family. Right? And sometimes it means you know, home or house in the sense of like a nuclear family or a very close-knit family. But sometimes it's used also to mean uh, groups like a tribe or a culture or even a nation. Like sometimes scriptures would refer to uh, the house of David or to the, to the house of Israel. 
You know, and I can remember back in seminary, one of my classes, uh, one of our, our global outreach professors talking about this word and using it to explain how the gospel tends to move, right? He said, the gospel tends to travel easily along established relational and cultural lines within families, within friends, within cultures. The gospel travels between trusted people. You know, many, how many of you, by raise of hands, can, can tell me that you came to Christ because of someone you distrusted and didn't like? Right? No, most of you, you know, heard the gospel and were open to the gospel because of somebody that you trusted, who was the real deal, right, in your same culture. Someone that you understood shared the gospel with you, right? And so the gospel tends to travel along these established relational and cultural lines. And that's kind of why it's important, by the way, to build positive relationships in our lives, right, of trust in our communities. Because um, it's important, we saw a couple weeks ago, to let your gentleness be evident to all so that people will trust you, right? And so the gospel runs along these relational lines, and when these lines end, it tends to stop. Just like it did with these Jewish communities who, who, would, who would become Christians. This is what happened with them uh, when, when they came back from Jerusalem and Pentecost. They went to their countries, and they spread the gospel among their own group, and it traveled along those lines, but it didn't jump to the cultures around them. When these trusted relational lines came to an end, it kind of just stopped there. But then, I want you to see this, something really historic happens. In Acts chapter 11, verses 20 and 21, something incredible happens that changes the history of the world. And, you know, I'll tell you what, most people just gloss over this verse and they read over this verse without even realizing the world-changing impact of it. But I want you to see it today. It says, some of them, that is, some of those Jewish believers who were returning home from Jerusalem where they found faith in Jesus, right? Some of them went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Now catch that for a minute. All right, catch that. All of a sudden, in the city of Antioch, for the first time, great numbers of Gentiles are coming to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, not long after that, Paul and Barnabas become associated with this church. And the church seems to grow and grow into a really strong church. It was so strong, as a matter of fact, that when a famine struck the churches in Judea, they were strong enough to take up an offering and alleviate the suffering that was happening in Judea. I mean, it's a strong church, right? And then we see in chapter 13 of Acts, something else amazing happens. Look at it. It says this, verses 2 and 3. It says, while they were worshiping, this Antioch church, that is filled with both Jewish people and a lot of Gentile Greek people as well. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So after they had fasted and prayed, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And then most of the rest of the book of Acts is filled with an account of Paul's missionary journeys, his first missionary journey, his second and his third missionary journeys. Paul and Barnabas become the first cross-cultural missionaries in history, fulfilling what God had shown Paul at the time of his conversion, that he would bring the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, it takes someone. It takes someone like Paul and Barnabas 
You know, or like this person, Ruby Mowry, right? Or um, these guys in Honduras that you see on the screen, uh, Mike Brown, Mike and Jess Brown, or, or these guys in Cambodia, the Xylers, right? It takes someone like that who's called by God and who's willing to move from one culture to another to immerse themselves in that culture to establish trust or, in Paul's word, to become all things to all people so that new relational lines can be established for the gospel to run along. And so it's here, in this verse here, that the body of Christ begins its journey to the uttermost parts of the earth. They've been in Jerusalem, they've been in Judea, they've been to Samaria, and they've been to their culture. But now the body of Christ stands on the precipice of a 2,000-plus-year journey to the uttermost parts of the earth. I mean, this is historic. This is huge. This is big. It says, so after they had fasted, they placed their hands on them and sent them off. And so as we read through the rest of the book of Acts then, and we read through Paul's letters, it looks like this church, Antioch, and then a number of other churches, including this Philippian church that we've been studying and learning from, they joined Paul in his effort to spread the gospel cross-culturally by offering support to him and his team. Now, about this time, usually someone's asking, well, you know what, Pastor Paul, I mean, um, I thought Paul was like a tent maker and he just earned his own way, right? And didn't he tell the Corinthians that, you know, he um, enjoyed preaching the gospel without charge? And the answer is, well, yes. I mean, there were occasions when Paul lacked some support that he worked as a tent maker or one of his team maybe worked you know, as a tent maker or some other job to, to support them while they were doing their gospel work, right? And uh, it's true that Paul did tell the Corinthians that he preached the gospel to them without charge, but this seems to be due to their extreme immaturity. I mean, think about it. They were fighting, they were arguing, they were boasting, right? They were carnal, they were worldly, they were sensual, and Paul doesn't seem to, to want to even begin to uh, take any support from them, but he does tell them kind of sarcastically. He says, you know, I robbed other churches by receiving support from them so I could preach the gospel to you without charge, right? But it seems like Paul's preferred methods was to cooperate with churches who were sending support to him and his team so he could spend his full time preaching the gospel and spreading the gospel. That's the primary way, the Bible way, that the gospel goes to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so this is Jesus' plan for what happens between the time he ascended to heaven and the time he returns to us. Okay, so now let's go back around to our Philippian believers that we've been studying. Back to Philippians chapter 4, right? Now these believers, they're not like the Corinthian believers that we just looked at, right? They don't have that, all the immaturity and the fighting and all of that kind of thing. Instead, it appears that they're mature, that they're loving, that they're of one mind, right? And uh, they're warm and generous and loving towards Paul and towards each other. And I mean, honestly, I think they would, actually, they, they would fit in well here, I think. I think, you know, they would fill in well with so much of the generous, loving uh, spirit that's often displayed here, right? Um, and uh, I trust that they just, like, if they were here, they'd fit right in. And so we see in these verses 14 to 20 that be they began sending Paul these gifts of support again and again. And, uh, and I want you to see what this is, right? This isn't charity. It's not a benevolence program or anything like that. Look back at chapter 1. Verses 4 and 5 for just a second. I want, I want you to see something here that you may have missed. It's something really important here. In chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. Now remember, Paul has just received this um, communication from Epaphroditus and, and, and the gifts that they had sent. 
And now he's writing them a letter back. And he says, in all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I mean, look at that phrase for a second. Partnership in the gospel. What he's talking about here is their partnership in spreading the gospel. Their partnership in the Great Commission. Their partnership with Paul and his team in going to the uttermost parts of the earth. They're taking part in it as much as Paul and his team are. The word partnership there, it's a Greek word, koinonia. Often translated partnership or fellowship or sharing. But it's much more, can I tell you, it's much more than a potluck supper, right? In the New Testament, it usually has the context of sharing life, sharing trials, sharing struggles, or sharing a mission together. Let me give you just a couple of examples of that, right? Uh, Right in our our chapter 4 today in Philippians, verse 14, Paul says, It was good of you to share in my troubles. The word there is koinonia. They entered into or participated in Paul's struggles. And then here's another one I want you to see. It's in 2 Corinthians. You know, but, but it's going to tell you something about these Philippian believers here. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he's talking to them about the offering that they were taking up for the, for the um, suffering churches in, in Judea and how the Corinthian church was the first church that wanted to help with this offering, but they'd been slow in completing it. And so at the beginning of the chapter, he says this. He says, and now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches. Now, that's the Philippians there. I mean, that would have included the Philippians and the, the church from Thessalonica and Berea as well. It's the Philippians he's talking about. He says, in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up into rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. In the middle of their own trials and difficulties, these Philippian believers entered into, shared in, participated in the trial and sufferings in Jerusalem. Koinonia, sharing, fellowship, participation. And so here, Paul is saying that they not only shared in his troubles, but they shared in the Great Commission. They shared in the mission of sending the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. All right, now, let's look at these last few verses here of chapter 4. And there's a few things I want you to see about participating in the Great Commission, all right? The first is this. When you participate in the Great Commission, you store up treasures in heaven. Look at verse 17. He says he's received their generous gift, and he goes on to say... Not that I desire your gifts. What I desire is that more be credited to your account. I mean, well, what account? I mean, well, it's not their 401K. It's not some IRA or something like that or some bank account. He's talking about their account in heaven. He's talking about filling up heaven with treasures. Now, he's not talking about salvation here or earning salvation or working towards salvation or anything like that. Salvation only comes through faith by grace, by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But he is talking about filling heaven with treasures. Jesus said it this way, 
Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. You know, any investment that you make in advancing the gospel, in advancing the kingdom of God, whether here locally or in the uttermost parts of the earth, whether it's investments of your time or your abilities or your resources, whatever it is, you are participating in the gospel and you are sharing in uh, the Great Commission and laying up treasures in heaven. And then the next is this. When you share and participate in the Great Commission, it's pleasing, it's a pleasing offering to God. Look at verse 18. He says, I've received full payment and have more than enough I'm amply supplied. Now I have received from Epaphroditus the gift you sent. Then here it is. They are a fragrant offering, an acceptable sacrifice, pleasing to God. Their offerings, the support of the Apostle Paul, sharing in Paul's effort to go to the uttermost parts of the earth with the gospel. It's pleasing. It's acceptable to God. It even says fragrant. In other words, um, it smells good to God. And this is important because, you know, every once in a while I'll hear someone um, denigrate uh, or downplay this kind of participation in the gospel with some type of negative comment that goes something along the lines of, well, you know, if you're not willing to go, you know, if you're not willing to go, um, then what does it mean? Nothing else means anything. Well, you know, can I tell you what? I mean, there's a sense in which that's true. I mean, if God's called you to go, then no amount of offerings will, will, will suffice or can replace you know, the calling of God on your life, right? But the fact is, God hasn't called most people to go cross-culturally. And here's why your offering is acceptable and pleasing and even smells good to God. You know, most of you in your pockets, you might have a few dollar bills or, or something, right? I mean, if you took one out and you looked at one, um, you've got a dollar bill. And even if you have one, I'd I like to encourage you to just look at it right for a minute. Right Now, you have, most of you, you've got a job, and you have this contract with someone who employs you that you will give them a certain amount of your time in exchange for a certain amount of those dollar bills. Right? That represents your time. You've given to their agenda. All right? And let's say you make $15 an hour, maybe. Right? So when you give $30 to a missionary, you're not just giving $30. What you've given is two hours of your time, two hours dedicated to get that $30 that you've given to, towards the cause of, of, of the Great Commission, right? Or if it's $60, that's four hours, right? You can do the math for, for your situation. It represents your time. That's why it's a pleasing and acceptable and even fragrant offerings to God. It represents you, who you are. To the generous heart, God says that he is going to meet all your needs. Look at verse 19. It says that my God will meet all your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. You know, this is another one of those verses often taken out of context and kind of lifted up. And someone says, you know, hey, brother, I see you're struggling. You know, well, don't worry, cherub. God's going to meet all your needs out of his riches and glory, right? All right. So, and, and yeah, that, that's true. But look at the context in which it's given. Paul sees here, um, he sees their generous heart and that participates in the Great Commission that wells up out of great poverty to eagerly desire to participate in the sufferings of, uh, of others that were in famine. When Paul sees this generous heart, he says, and my God will meet all your needs according to the riches 
of his glory in Christ Jesus. And you know what? That's not brand new here. It's not like some brand new thing he's saying here, you know, or something he's getting just excited about and saying because he just got this offering, right? This agrees with a number of Old Testament scriptures as well that they may have been familiar with. Psalm 112, it says it like this. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright. For those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous, God will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. And then Proverbs chapter 11, 25, it says it this way. A generous person will prosper. Whoever refreshes others will themselves be refreshed. God responds to generosity. And so to the generous and content heart, the word of God says God will meet all of your needs according to the riches of his glory in Christ Jesus. All right, so as we're getting ready to land the plane this morning, I want, I want you to look for a minute just at verse 20. He says, to our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Now look at that word for a minute, our. I mean, he could have just said, to God the Father be glory forever and ever, amen. And that would have been good enough, right? That would have been fine to end that way. But even as he gets ready to close this letter, Paul, I think deliberately, deliberately uses inclusive, relational language. He's, he's just not, you know, the God and the Father. He's our God and he's our Father. And so Paul starts this letter with a sense of participating and fellowshipping and sharing in the gospel together. And throughout the letter, he uses this relational language when he says things like stand firm together, um, love one another, be of one spirit, be of one mind, have tenderness and compassion for one another. And then several times throughout the letter, he even says brothers and sisters. Right? He's not just my God and my Father. He's our Father. So we're not just churchgoers, right? We are part of the body of Christ, part of the family of God, both here and around the world. And all around us are brothers and sisters in Christ, and we're all working together to bring glory to God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ here in our Jerusalem and in our Judea and Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the earth. All right, well, I want to finish up with this this morning. You know, um, late this week as I was finishing this, this, uh, this message, after I just about completely finished it, I received an email from one of our uh, missionaries. And it greatly encouraged me. I think it'll encourage you as well. It's from Frank and Mary Jane Kendrick of Argentina. And uh, they minister in uh, Argentina, teach in a Bible school training uh, as well, training Argentinian pastors for ministry to their own uh, people. And, uh, you know, I won't read the whole letter, but they describe some of the things that they're, they're going through with, with COVID-19 and how it's affecting their ministry. And then they say this. They say, you know, um, it's safe to say, and this is them speaking now, it's safe to say that all of us have been impacted in one way, uh, in ways that we don't like by the COVID-19 pandemic. One thing that has become obvious to many of us is that we are not in charge. We don't know what tomorrow will bring, how long this will last, but when things will get back to normal. The good news is that God is still in charge and his work continues. We become very aware of his grace and his presence during the past five plus months and thank him for his faithfulness. We're also very thankful for something else, which is really the point of this letter. 
All of you who pray for us and send offerings for our ministry are very important to us. And we want to say to you that we love you and appreciate you very much. When the pandemic hit, resulting in the loss of jobs and all kinds of other difficulties, we assumed our support would also take a hit. However, we've been amazed as we have seen a different reality. In spite of all you face, your support for our ministry has not wavered. We are aware of the sacrifice many of you have had to make in order to maintain your missions given. We feel unworthy of such love and commitment, but we rejoice that we have friends like you who believe in missions and in us. Thank you so much. Our prayers are with you that God's grace, strengthen, and provision will continue to sustain you during this difficult time and that you will know his grace and provision as never before. Blessings, Frank and Mary Jane Hendricks. Can I just tell you something? You did that. I mean, you did this. It's because of you and, and people like you all over this country who've been faithful, trusting God, who have the same type of love and spirit uh, towards God and towards his work. Um, you guys did that. God bless you. Thank you for your faithfulness. Many of you have the same spirit and love and faith that we see in these Philippian believers. You know, I looked at it this week. I looked at our, our missions giving from here in the past six months during this pandemic, March, April, May, June, July, and August. And do you know that, that basically, I mean, in that time period, we are $15 in the red. I mean, just basically having, having broken even in, in our giving in one of the most unsettling, uncertain times in any of our lives. Do you know what? You can only do that when your faith is completely in Jesus. You can only do that when you are content in Jesus and when you have the peace of God in your life that passes all understanding, when you're confident that God is going to supply all of your needs out of his riches in glory. Thank you for your faith. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your confidence and your trust in God. Amen. Well, this week we've, we've looked at what it means to partner with the gospel to the uttermost parts of the earth. And now, next week, when we have North Star Initiative with us, I'm going to complete some thoughts on this passage with some ideas about what it means to partner in the gospel right here in our Jerusalem by looking at verse 14 and uh, sharing in people's troubles and lifting them up, right? So, and the beautiful thing about that is uh, when you're sharing in the gospel in your Jerusalem, it goes so much beyond your finances. You share yourself, you share your life, you share your resources, your abilities. You share who you are with someone else, with your community. All right, so as we get ready to conclude this service, I just kind of want to challenge you. You know, beyond any financial support for our missionaries and all of that, I encourage you to that. And, uh, but like these Philippians, I want to challenge you to love these missionaries to love and support them. I challenge you, if you're here, to go by our missionary wall this morning. Maybe let God lay one of them on your heart. Commit to pray for them um, this week, maybe for a month. You know, maybe each week go by and choose a different missionary that God would lay on your heart. Or each month go by and choose a different missionary family that God would lay on your heart. And let him begin, begin to build an increased love in your heart. May God fill us with a generous heart that overflows with love like these Philippian believers. Or would you bow with me in prayer 
as we close this service. Oh, Heavenly Father, as we go out this week, God, help us put these verses into practice. Give us an overwhelming, generous, loving heart as we participate with you and with each other in your plan to extend your grace here in our Jerusalem, our Judea, and in Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth until you decide it's time to return. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen, amen. God bless you. Have an awesome, wonderful, grace-filled week.